0: Demerzels. I won't use the forbidden word, but cells pursue.
1: Daniil,
0: Daniil, Daniil. Okay, got there it we out. Go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but... Welcome to season two of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Foundation, Isaac Asimov's classic science fiction series. Both the books and the TV series currently streaming on Apple TV+. In season one, we read through the three books of Asimov's original Foundation series with an enthusiastic but critical eye. Now we've turned that eye to our screens to watch and discuss the show. I'm John, and I'll be one of the voices guiding you through this story of the fall and rise of galactic empires. I'm Dan. We're Foundation fans who love the novels
2: but aren't aren't afraid to critique them. We're hoping to love Apple's new series, and aren't afraid that it's an adaptation that changes some things, but if we see something that rubs us the wrong way, we'll let you know.
3: My name is Joseph. You joined us on our nostalgic journey through this 80-year-old classic. Now join us on a new adventure as we see whether galactic civilization and this new interpretation of Asimov's story will evolve or die.
1: Last week, some of us complained that episode five of Foundation didn't advance the story and that it strayed from the big themes. Well, this week, we got an episode packed with action, steeped in big themes, sometimes in surprising ways. Here to help us sort through it is Morgan, known on Twitter as Redacted Daniel Olivar, aka Asimov Posting. Welcome to the podcast. In what is now a tradition in, in the short life of our pod, instead of giving you a long and probably inaccurate introduction, I'll let you tell us about yourself. And of course, you're interested in Asimov and R. Daniil Oliva, who is definitely going to be a big part of our discussion today.
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay. so um, my name is Morgan. I am 24 years old. So you can think of me as sort of the the Brother Don of the Foundation Hemisphere. I am a biotech scientist in the Midwestern United States, and I, I, I studied chemistry. Which is one linkage that I got to Asimov. So um, I've always been really interested in Isaac Asimov's story. He's written a lot of really prolific nonfiction, but I stumbled upon his fiction actually following my recognition of his nonfiction. I was 14 years old at my public library and I was looking to read the follow up of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it was a small public library. So naturally they didn't have any of the additional novels, but they did have Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Were, were you
1: going through science fiction uh, in alphabetical order well, at I, this
0: point? I, it wasn't <laughs> intentionally alphabetical. It was just, it went Adams and then Asimov because there was maybe four shelves of sci-fi. So I was taking what I could get, but I I, I do remember going on Reddit back in like, God, whatever it was, 2012, 2011, and just being like, top sci-fi please what do I read because I I just have this real sci-fi brain Where I'm at this point I think I was finally coming to terms with the fact that I was a chronic nerd so <laughs> I so I found Asimov I'm like okay I I've read it it's a bit heady it's it's tedious but I I I live for that so we're gonna read it and it's so interesting because I remember when I first picked up Foundation and I was reading the first chapter, The the Psychohistorians, I think is what the first story was called. I was really engaged by the trial in Gail Dornick or Gal Dornick as I knew her or him, God, (laughs) back when I was reading it. And then it just never came back. So I, I am intrigued by the way that the show is stretching out. the the central character there but from there i i just started scouring through all the asimov i could find um i do distinctly remember liking the robot series a lot more and then being really excited when i read i think i read prelude first and then i read the sequels but i was just like oh my god (laughs) like just like why is daniel here yeah then um yeah so then i i went onwards with the series and I found a very niche community on the internet to talk about it with and I have I'd say I've talked to people in every single country at this point about Asimov because the fandom is so sparse but I've I've really been around on on the internet talking about Asimov for about the past like eight years. (laughs) Wow yeah so
1: obviously you're at Asimov posting on Twitter.
0: Yes. Is my there... name changes constantly. So it's okay. Kind of well, for now it. all it's all that Asimov it. posting. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything
1: else, Any anything else you want to link to any other creative stuff that you want to plug or anything here?
0: I can, I can give you my first author paper that I did in NMR spectroscopy. <laughs> I'm
1: sure, I'm sure my daughter, the biologist would be.
0: Interested in that. I uh, yeah. Thing. I really, I wish I had a more creative outlet. I, I do write a lot of short Lovecraftian type stories, but I haven't really developed a a blog or anything to post them on. So I don't really have anything just yet. I, I've been pondering something to do with that, some sort of vehicle. Like I mentioned, doing poetry earlier, but yeah, I, I don't really have much else. So if I, you want, if you want to know. talk to me, <laughs> find we, me. We on want Twitter. to talk to you
1: about we want to talk to you about Foundation. That's what our podcast. is Ninety percent
0: of my brain powers is dedicated to foundation. So, well, good place, a a worthy
1: cause. So (laughs) I guess we want to just make sure that we go back. And if there are any points about previous episodes that we want to return to or cover Uh, Joseph, you had a a theory that you came up with that I thought was intriguing prior to watching episode six. Maybe you want to talk about that. Uh,
3: Yeah. And um, because it just, it just struck me at some point that they Did the odd thing of having that that scene where we had to Gail had to convince someone else to bank her embryo, and I started pondering, well, what what might have happened to that embryo? I don't think the foundation, as it stands, is in a position to just waste a perfectly good embryo. And so I'm like wondering, well, where is that embryo? And it strikes me, well, maybe that's um, Salvar Harden. And it fits. It 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 explains why we got that odd scene in the first place. Yeah. It explains why the vault seems drawn to her, because it could be rec- it could be set up for race, like that uh, that rescue ship, and just be recognizing her DNA.
1: I mean, and it would explain why they took us through that whole. At the time, it seemed very odd. Scene about embryos. It's kind of Chekhov's embryo. You know, you don't mention embryo. An embryo in, in episode i guess it was episode two unless it's going to come yeah. back and and have some sort of effect later on in the show so i mean we'll we'll see so far they haven't gone there
3: yeah they have i mean the the other thing that it would explain because it bothered me when we watched it, is the scene where salvor's mom gives her the prime radiant and she's like she's like look at this can you figure anything out where you know we've already talked about her not being particularly good at math And, you know, that made me just think that this character I'm supposed to think is smart maybe isn't very smart. But that would give her mom, you know, if her mom knows that she's actually Gail Dornick's daughter, she might think there's some sort of latent ability there that would kick in.
0: So I think it's funny that you bring up, because I I think definitely a lot of fan theories and even my own theories are aligned with this genetic connection. This, I, I think there was a part in episode five where... The Anacrian woman. Gosh, I'm so bad with names. But Vara, Vara, yeah.
1: Our favorite, our favorite actress.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, Cooper say really I know her. <laughs> I know her real name, but she had said that there isn't that link. Like she can't tell there's a link between Selvor and her mother. So that which which kind of alludes to sort of a supernatural potentially metallic link. But I, I definitely think that that scene going back to the embryo does say this embryo has traveled far and wide and may or may not have been accessed at a time that would help the timelines align as they have three four years later because my perception is that Harden isn't quite 34 years old she seems to be quite a bit younger however i i actually thought the more interesting part in that scene discussing banking embryos was the other woman who decided to have a natural birth and they mentioned all these potential effects and mutations that can be associated with natural birth in space And my mind immediately went to the mule which is mm-hmm. jumping the gun but i'm thinking is this woman going to give birth to the mule it's a little early so i so it's interesting now we're coming back to gail dornick's embryo but
1: that's 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 a really good point i feel like thing, that, of course- i
0: feel like that was also an important detail there is a child being born or maybe, you know, yeah. I, hopefully being bored, but undergoing this bombardment of cosmic radiation in a very unnatural sense. And I feel like they just they, they just left that.
3: <laughs> well, I thought that they I thought that they resolved that because I thought we later on saw that that young lady drinking wine at the dinner where Rach blew up at, at, at Harry.
0: Could it have been fake, though? Could have been. <laughs> There, there seems mind- to be a lot of lies at that dinner table, in yeah, my
4: that's opinion. Did.
1: Keep in mind, though, that if a, if you have a banked embryo, it doesn't have to have been immediately given birth to when they landed right. on Terminus. They could have waited 10 years, and then right. you know, that puts Salver in probably exactly. the, right, the right age. Now, and there may be a parallel here to something that we've talked about before, and we're going to talk about probably a lot more in this episode, which is the possibility of Demerzel not just manipulating governments and psychohistorians, but also possibly manipulating brother Dawn Mm -hmm. in vitro because there's there's as we as we continue to see in this episode there's a lot of differences between brother Dawn and the other Cleons and we will definitely get to that but before we do that anything else about this or previous other other things about previous episodes?
2: Just one uh it it's uh also Gale related uh you know in the I think our review of the very of the first episode I brought up the point I was kind of annoyed with this bit about Gail waking up during the jump and how all the characters seemed to think that was a big deal, but then it was dropped and we didn't know what to do <laughs> with it. In this episode, we just got a quick callback to the issue of waking up during the jump in which Demersel uh, told Brother Day that I, I can I can stay awake because I'm a robot and human brains are just completely driven mad by this jump. So... I don't think that's telling us that Gale is really a robot. I don't know where that embryo would have come from otherwise. But, right. but certainly, I, I think it's clear that whatever it was, however that's going to go, it wasn't just some sort of editing mistake and, and really, this is still an issue and it will eventually be resolved.
1: And we did you know, find I, out, by the way, that the spacers are engineered humans. Huh? So they resolve that. Oh that' shot look human. A, They look a quite human. Lot <laughs> human.
2: They look a lot like Navi. From. <laughs>
1: they, they, they do they, they don't have the long you know the long
2: they are not long, blue, but right. no, yeah elongated. they're elongated
1: and are elongated. and yeah. they have the little like lines all over them. I don't know what that's all about, yeah. but they anyway resolve that they're engineered humans, which again brings up the possibility of engineered humans, which you know, well, having... there's
0: biohacking technology, right as we saw from yeah. the very questionable exploits of Demerzel in episode two. <laughs>
1: let's go through the story quickly. I don't want to go over it. I, I watched this episode twice because I took notes frantically the first time. And then I realized I, I better like go back over it. And I numbered the scene changes. There were 33 scene changes, which is, I don't actually know if that's a lot or not. It felt like a lot. So I'm not going to go through the, the scenes in order, because if you want to go through the scenes in order, just go watch the show. But um. I kind of broke it down into about five different categories of story. So uh, first you have Brother Day and the Luminists, where Brother Day arrives and is welcomed by Zephyr Halima, who is pretty impertinent from the beginning and eventually... Uh, later on in the story, completely outmaneuvers Brother Day, who tries to bribe the uh, the Luminists with a uh, a desalination system, which, by the way, I thought was kind of weird, because they seem to kind of worship the salt water, like, and he wants to desalinate the water, they're all excited about it, but whatever. Zephyr Halima, who is the, the heretic, the, the, the choice for Proxima that he doesn't want, in the end, she completely outmaneuvers everybody, and it seems pretty clear that She's going to win that race for for Proxima, which is a blow to to Brother Day, but not as big a blow as and I'm going to save this for later as as Demerzel delivers to him,
4: mm-hmm.
1: and, and we will we'll get to that because I want to I want to kind of separate that out. Then we have Brother Dawn and Brother Dusk um, who are together, uh, and they're hunting, and again we see a big difference between Brother Dawn and the other Cleons, where Brother Dawn uh, kills six of these crazy birds. Brother Dusk's record is three. I get the impression that that's about standard for a Cleon. And Brother Dawn doubles that. So there's a difference between uh, uh, Brother Dawn and the other Cleons. And then there's Brother Dawn and the Gardener. We have a very romantic scene with some sort of weird sex and suicide mixed together, which I thought was a bit okay, well, whatever. It's, it's what they decided to do. But we get another Brother Dawn difference, which is we find out he's colorblind which no other Cleon has been. So they are no longer hinting that he's different. They are smacking us in the face here. With the idea that brother Don is different, why he's different. We suspect is Demerzel's plan, right? But we don't actually know that. And then there's the scene on Terminus. There's a couple of things going on on Terminus. There's Salver Harden and Hugo and Abbas fighting, trying to blow up the, uh, the Anacreon Corvettes, which they decide are, are are key to stranding the Anacreons there, because they figure out that Farah is building a crew to, to crew a, some kind of a jump ship. We find out it's the Invictus, a lost ship from hundreds of years ago. This is a real throwback to the book, by the way, where the Anacreons find an abandoned imperial battleship, and they get the foundation to restore it for them. So they 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 connected us to the book though in a, in a slightly different way there. And then Salver has another vision. And this time she inhabits Gale on the ship. And we get the true story of what happened to Hari, which as we suspected, uh, Hari wanted Rach to kill him and that he had to for the plan. And Harry says the entire galaxy is pivoting on, on the actions of one person, you. And, and we could talk about that because that's, you know, again, this whole idea of the individual versus the versus the psychohistorical masses. And finally, there's a couple of miscellaneous things. There's there's Lord Dorwin who somehow survives the, uh, as you described it, Dan, the Hindenburg like explosion of his ship. The Anacreon's bizarrely take credit for that. I don't know how they could, you know, the, you're alive because we wanted you to be alive. Uh, I'm not sure how that operates. I, I felt like his part of the ship must've had a, a few inches of plot armor around it and that's how he survived i I don't know and then of course we have abbas who who is killed while destroying the anacreon's corvettes and finally uh we see at the end of the episode salver who has for various reasons taken control of hugo's ship and and she is lifting off from from terminus i couldn't help but notice farah being a real badass there on the bridge like she's told to strap in and she says oh no I'm good here. I, I felt like she probably wouldn't take a vaccine either. You know, she was probably an anti-vaxxer because she's she's too tough. She's too tough. She'll fight the, the pandemic by herself. And I mean, it was, it was, it was back and forth between all of these scenes. There was a lot of action and conversation. There was a lot of Demerzel. She was a key figure in the uh in the scenes with Brother Day and I don't know. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw it open to you guys to what what you thought was was crucial and important and what you think of it. You know, we
2: get a bewildering number of new ideas and new directions. It's kind of the opposite about like what we were saying last week, where half of the story was, as you called it, a story bridge, and then half was maybe sort of character development or thematic development. Here we are rushing in several new directions at once. I think we're all taken with Demerizel, but we can leave that to a, a full discussion at the end. I think the thing other than that that really struck me is this reveal scene of Harry and Rach talking and the fact that that came through one of Salver's visions in a very odd way. It certainly felt like, in some ways the climax of the episode, the big new drop that we were getting as to what's going on. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it. I think we had all guessed before that, yes, this was a plan between Harry and Rach. It wasn't just Rach angry at Harry because of what he said at lunchtime. But why is such focus given to us here? And what do we make of it?
3: Well, I'm, one of the things that jumps out at me is that th- that seems firmly to be coming down on the side of psychohistory being hokum, because there's a, a huge component of psychohistory has to be that it can't det- you know it can't predict individual actions, and you know it should it's supposed to be working on broad, very broad historical information, and just the idea that they would be putting in data about race in particular and Gale in particular. I mean, it seems dubious unless individual actions are going to be important. Yeah, Harry so-
1: absolutely says that the math says you have to be the one to kill me. You can't stay with Gale. These are the actions that you as an individual have to do. And he says the fate of, of an entire galaxy pivots on the actions of one individual, which, you know, again, that's not what we've been told psychohistory is about. And by the way, Rage promptly, while he does kill Harry, violates the rest of it. He, yep. it's, he stays with Gale, but instead of going in the pod, like Harry tells him to, he puts Gale in the pod. And so he's he goes ahead and he kills Harry in order to keep the plan going, but then immediately violates what Harry yes, told him sure. about. What's going to keep the plan going? So the plan is now theoretically off somehow.
0: Very yeah. early in the series for there to be like this character stir up of the plan, so it's almost like is this the first Seldon crisis in the perspective of the show? And and like you had said, like he says, the math says that you have to kill me. The math, or psychohistory as we know it in the books, can't it wouldn't spell that out for you. So I, I'm questioning, and a part of me is optimistic, foolishly so I think, but a part of me is thinking, you know, is this a misdirection on the part of Harry Seldon? You know, is he keeping Raish in the dark and there's some sort of underlying plan here because Raish does not understand the mathematics because he hates the math but he, he's not a psychohistorian. he's not a mathematician which also holds true in the books he you know he doesn't have a formal mathematics education Hugo Amaral did who isn't here supposedly I doubt we'll see him but uh, I wonder if this is a deliberate misdirection the only thing throwing a wrench in that, I think, is the fact that we do have this raven ship that is programmed to Raish's DNA. So in this case, it, it does seem deliberate, but I wouldn't be surprised if this turns out to be another somewhat lie.
3: <laughs> well, uh,
0: maybe again, I'm just optimistic that we have a, a good historically compliant explanation for this. <laughs>
2: Let me let me float a theory that at least gives us the possibility that psychohistory is still alive and well despite this. And that is that even in the books, we still have, you know, Harry Selden had to invent this stuff. <laughs> and we, and he set up, you know, he had to set up the foundation and the second foundation in certain ways. So that in a sense, psychohistory, yes, it's it it works only in the aggregate and the abstract and on this level without regard to individuals but only after you've set up the starting conditions. Mm-hmm. And so maybe perhaps let's say Rach, even if he's not the mathematician that Harry is, he maybe knows from Harry how this is supposed to all play out. And that mm-hmm. if he were to end up uh, on terminus, you know, the, then the, the purity of the second, or, the, or the, the purity of the foundation of being innocent of what's going to happen might be corrupted something like that.
1: Although so, interestingly, He was willing yeah. to allow Gale to continue on to Terminus mm-hmm. who does understand the math so I'm not sure how yeah. all that works out. That's that's true.
0: Which now she's going to Helicon which why would Rache be going to Helicon because already it I, I don't understand that connection because at least my understanding from the novels is that Harry is fairly detached from Helicon at this point. I mean he was thrust away from it by you know, <laughs> Apple restricted word, but um, <laughs> Demerzel. But he he didn't seem to have. He mentioned he didn't have familial attachments by the time he got to Trentor. So I, I I don't understand the Helicon bit. I don't know if Helicon's being set up to be the second foundation or what is happening there. But let's say the plan went as it should have, and Raish decided not to pursue Gale, and he you know, Harry killed himself and he got in the pod. Why is he going to Helicon?
2: <laughs> my, my bet is that it is, it's is—it's the, the the new home of the Second Foundation and that for whatever reason, the, the writers decided that, that
1: it couldn't be on Trantor. Or it could be starting on Helicon and it could move yeah. to Trantor. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. At, at, at the very least, that would be a natural place. It would, maybe not a very natural place, but you would think it'd be a natural place where Harry might go. And whoever was in that ship is going to meet up, needs to meet up with Harry.
0: With the presumption that, he, that he's not going to be actually dead.
3: Right. Well, right. yeah, I think, I think we all have that presumption.
0: Like the, because, I mean, we, we saw a cryopod in action with Gale. So a specially designed coffin. Again, you don't mention
1: well. a specially designed coffin for no reason.
4: <laughs> <That's> right.
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was almost comically deliberate, like, oh, poor Harry Seldon. May he rest in peace in his very specially functionally designed coffin <laughs> that he picked out himself.
4: Yeah, he, he like just wants like to You be... don't even
0: mention the coffin. like yeah, yeah we buried him. He's in, he's in space now. just thrust the, the body out into the depths of space. I mean, he's... what if they
1: had cremated him then that, that would have put a rent on
0: yeah, they put that it would... they'll put him back together. <laughs>
2: the the no, trantor- just... trantorian, trantorian funeral homes are great at upselling <laughs> upselling you into a, a fantastic high-tech co- coffin.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think he just wants to be the second coming of Walt Disney.
0: <laughs> I was thinking of, who is it um, on the re- in the red square? Is it Lenin? Has his body yes. preserved? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought of.
1: And I think that Lenin at this point is basically a wax figure. I, I, I'm not sure how much of Lenin is actually left. Yeah, the head's
3: not real. Harry's I know left. that
0: much. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't paint Book Harry Seldon as being that pompous, but I do paint... TV show, Harry Seldon, is being exactly that pompous. He was very offended by not being called doctor, which I've dealt with that in person before as well. So it's like I earned that title, but
1: I think I'm the only one currently on this podcast who has not. So uh,
0: <laughs> I haven't. I promise.
1: OK, well, uh, these two,
2: These I'd two be a pro-
0: I would doctors. be Gail Dornick at that point. I'd be a prodigy.
4: <laughs>
2: the doctorate is really not all that it's cracked up to be. There, there are some gigantic morons who have doctorates. So. Oh, good lord, yes! If you've yeah. ever worked <laughs> on the
3: on a college faculty, you know that. Maybe we should cut that out of the episode.
2: Yeah, <laughs> no, no, that's
0: definitely yeah, that's our here. demographic, guys. That's the demographic here. We're towing okay. the line.
1: But. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about Brother Dawn. Where I, I want to come back to Brother Day and the Luminous because it seemed like that was that was central to the whole thing and should be safe for the end. But Brother Dawn. In his interactions with brother dusk and also with uh his new girlfriend the gardener where we really are starting to see a lot of a lot of differences uh with brother dawn and i guess i'm curious as to where that's going what why is he different is it is it because Demerzel manipulated him and wants to finally make some changes to the cleons and if so what is the what is the end result there? I mean, we've 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 speculated before that all of this, that Demrezel is the puppet master for all of this, the psychohistory, the foundation, and now the changes to the Cleons. I mean, is that is that what we're seeing unfold here?
2: I think so. I mean, I think at least we we now have finally firm confirmation that this brother Don is genetically different from the other two. Presumably, that is due to Demersel's interference. I assume she wasn't just hanging out there with the embryo to make him colorblind, and that's it. I, I assume that's Singing. linked. linked that's how you do it? <laughs> link, linked. The colorblindness <laughs> is linked to some other more important trait, but as to what that is, or why, or where this is going, we don't know. But uh, he has we,
0: good aim. I don't know if did, that means something. Well, that,
2: he <laughs> does. He sure does. Yeah, He's a warrior. I saw, I saw that
3: as entirely setting up for the colorblindness. Because they were talking about those raptors as mm-hmm. you know the the color blending in so perfectly and you can't look for the- you know you can't look for the color you've got to look for the mo- the the uh, the motion
0: right and, so- and when you have those sort of things disabilities are similar you you learn to compensate for them mm-hmm. so he might have developed this acuity beyond the standard color spectrum so i don't okay. I don't think he's necessarily a, a sharpshooter I think he has learned to differentiate aside from color while his four selves have not done so
3: <laughs> yeah but i, I think that the bigger difference that i that is interesting is that he's actually seems to be drawn to other people and to actually give a damn about other people whereas the other Cleons that we have seen have been almost entirely self-absorbed they will go to the that little retreat that they went to for some let's call it stress relief but you know they are completely insular they're only only spending time with themselves. They're dangerous for the servants to be around. And yet, uh, 14 there is um, actually seems to be developing feelings for this young lady.
1: Though he does have the classic Cleon arrogance when mm-hmm. Brother yes. Dusk says, You know, I'll help you mold into uh, whatever he, he says. Oh, that's yeah. okay. I'll mold myself.
3: Thank that's you. That's right. Very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was not completely different. That's certainly true.
0: Oh, well, I was just going to say, I keep waiting because I think his appearance really does align very well with our chain of command in the casting. You know, I I could see this particular character evolving into a Lee Pace appearance, but I, I would be very interested to see him evolve and grow into another actor and then have to put up this guise of Lee Pace or trying to look because I, I would not be surprised if he looked entirely different. And that was sort of a big plot twist. Mm. <laughs> like, oh. I think
1: they spent a lot of time with the actors getting their motions and mannerisms mm-hmm. to match because they do the same hand motions. They do the same head motions
0: except for uh, Cleon 14.
1: Of, well, he does. Some He's of out them, to think. <laughs> He does some of them though. We did get, we did get some uh, cheesecake shots of Lee pace by the way, <laughs> which uh, were very impressive. You know, I, I was, uh, quite taken with him there. He's, he's, uh, he works out.
4: (laughs) Doesn't have a neck
0: button though. I want to emphasize his new, the nutrient feed is not a standard umbilical cord to the navel. We saw in pictures from episode three, that they have the umbilical cord directed to the neck back region. And then they showed a shot of his neck and it wasn't there. Hmm. So I have so many questions. And this is the point where somebody who's in science says, all right, we're done with the show. It's inaccurate.
3: (laughs) If I can get by being in math, I think you guys are fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listen, I I could go on about gene editing because I I work in in gene gene therapy and gene editing. And I I could go on about all the different possibilities of what Demerzel's doing down there. how she screwed it up.
4: Oops. Oops.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm still curious where that's going to go. I mean, and and how that's going to fit into the plan. uh, If it fits into the Mm plans, that's, that's fascinating. And they, they're definitely, um, you know, they've, they've, they've let the mask slip at this point. I mean, the Mm -hmm. colorblindness clearly is a genetic difference. That's Mm -hmm. something that, that they're making a statement about there.
3: And and one 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 thing there, I I think it's it's interesting to note that Shadow Master, what was his name? Obrecht. something. Yes, no, probably has figured out the color because he found those other raptors.
1: Well, he strikes me as the kind of person who's sort of a collector of secrets. Mm. And he does seem to have that cloaking device that turned him invisible right at the end of that scene. And he's just very interested in having discovered that Brother Dawn has a secret, was, was mm-hmm. the impression that I got. He just, he just likes to collect those things. Uh, we also got a lot of views, or, or, or at least more views, of how much the different Cleons don't trust each other.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: First, you have Brother, Brother Dawn saying, I don't want Brother Dusk to know about how my, my prowess. And I can understand him being afraid of Revealing his difference, uh, but then Brother Dusk with the girl that that Brother uh, Brother Don doesn't actually do anything with. He wants to know every word that Brother Don said in that conversation, and of course we've already seen the conflict between the different Cleons. So that that seems like it's it's not a new thing. Just because Brother Day uh, Brother Don is different, I, I would guess that that this kind of infighting has been going on throughout time with the Cleons. Maybe it's healthy. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Brotherly love. <laughs>
1: Brother, brotherly. Can you call case. it brotherly?
0: No. I don't need, like, what a dynamic.
1: <laughs> well, as we've said before, I, I mean, I don't know how you could live with copies of yourself. I, I would not enjoy that in any way. So so we do get the the advancement of uh, what's going on on Terminus. Uh, we find out that the Anacreons have discovered a derelict ship, which apparently is powerful enough to, to worry Salver that they're going to be able to plunge the entire galaxy into conflict having it restored and they seem to be on their way to getting it restored um as i said that's that's definitely a throwback to the uh to the book where the foundation repairs a ship uh which actually becomes called the Venus. yes i remember it fondly <laughs> this is not the weenus this is the invictus it's somewhat <laughs> reminiscent of, of that but that that was uh, I, I felt like they, they were kind of tossing us a uh the readers of the book, they're sort of tossing us something. Oh, here's something that'll remind you of the books. We we've got a, we've got a derelict battleship that we're gonna, we're gonna bring into play.
0: Now quit your yapping. (laughs) Threw us a bone. (laughs)
1: Exactly. You guys, you want the book, here's the book. Okay. So that's, that's kind of where the action is taking place. I did think that we had a little bit of a return to some of the overall overarching themes. And I complained last week that they sort of dropped the themes. Uh, certainly, you have a parallel to the Cleons in the Luminist religion, which oh, is where the goddess is in three parts, just like the Cleons are. Uh, they, of course, highlight the differences as well. We we come back to the question of whether Demerzel is manipulating things and how psychohistory works. The theme of psychohistory is brought back in by the conversation between Harry and Rach and the, this question about individuals. Having uh, having an effect or not having an effect, stuff that was really almost entirely left out of the previous episode. It seems like they're allowing it to come back in. It does give me some hope that the rest of the season is going to get more and more into those themes, and they're going to be more important to the resolution, at least of the season, and then on into future seasons. So I, I like that. I was happy about that.
3: Yeah. You know, so you, you you brought up the luminous, and yeah, I d- I did notice the the the, the nice parallelism between you know, the triumvirate in the, you know, in the Cleons, and then there, there are three gods, but it also struck me, and of course, we know that Asimov was reading the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, there are a lot of parallels between the, um, you know, in particularly the tripartite, the tripartite god, you know, a lot of parallels with the Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, I could definitely sim- see some Catholic iconography in parallel. I, I know that, I don't know if you guys listened to the official podcast, but I know that David Goyer, who he himself did mention he is a religious. So I, I interpreted that as some sort of non-theistic or atheistic or agnostic, at least. But uh, he mentioned that the religion was kind of designed around a framework of Buddhism, but I actually saw a lot of Catholicism in it as well. And going back to the Roman side of things, you know, you have that callback to the triumvirate with you know, the Roman empire. So I I think that at least is true to the books, which, you know, has such influence from Gibbons rise and fall. So at the very least we're seeing that come through in the show. And I do want to say that, sorry, but I do want to say that I think religion as an emphasis in the show, I I know a lot of people are saying it's antithetical, but I, I do think having, you know, read through the foundation it, I think it is a very good introspective on humanity because so much of humanity is driven by faith, whether it be in religion or otherwise. I actually liked that exploration.
2: Yeah, religion is obviously part of the books. Like from, yeah, from the, the, first the, book. first, the first novel, we, <laughs> we get first it. First stories. It's, it's coming out in a different form here. We're getting a little bit more theology talk than than Asimov gave us. But, but so far, I, I don't think that the show is actually promoting
1: religion over no. science. It's just
2: taking it seriously as a social force in the
1: empire. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm fine with it. Well, let's talk about the robotic elephant in the room, which is that <laughs> Demerzel. Don't call her that. A, <laughs> she's very spelt. She is not. She's, even very, she's very svelte. I find elephants very attractive anyway. So Okay. <laughs> now <you know> <laughs> this is a me.
0: different kind of podcast.
1: <laughs> now Demerzel turns out to be a believer in luminism. Now, that strikes me as a major issue. Um, I don't think Asimov would have envisioned robots as being religious. And in fact, in my mind, the robot's religion is the three laws of robotics. Because if you think about it, it's kind of like a revealed philosophy for them. It's not something that they come to through logic and reason and comparison with the world and science. I mean, you know, robots strike you as being that way. This is something that is imposed from outside. And their service to humanity, to me, always struck me as kind of the robot's religion. But now we have Demerzel, who is, we assume, bound by the three laws of robot, or the four laws of robotics, if you like. And she's a believer. Now she explains to brother day why she's a believer. And it has to do with the search for meaning, but, yeah, it, but it, you know, that, that just hit me as like, this is a break with Asimov here. Uh,
3: yeah. Well, and, and, it was interesting to me that, that his first question was how can you be a believer? And she sidestepped that with the why, because I, I could, think, I how? could sense
0: the, <laughs> sorry.
3: Uh, no, I was going say, I, I could, um, you know, because I think the how is the more interesting question. Because uh, you're right. I mean, she, you know, she's a robot. She should be, you know, programmed logically. And I don't know how you would program faith. Although there's a story in iRobot where um, where you know one of one of the one of the robots actually develops you know develops a faith uh, about. I, f- I forgot. What it was keeping some kind of.
1: It's like um, an energy beam that they yeah, ener- that used to to keep Earth. That's how Earth gets its energy from these, from this, and it has to be aimed absolutely perfectly. Right. Um, and the robot develops a religion around the beam. Yeah.
3: So that you're I mean, right. That's true. Yeah. So there was that, but I mean, but what seems doubly strange, particularly in that last scene, is that the well. Okay, I like the geometry of the luminism. Yeah, how Luminism is a circle and the Cleons are a, a straight line. I mean, there, there's some, some nice imagery in there. But the, that entire speech is about how through reincarnation, you're going through a cycle and your souls are growing and you can't have a growing soul in, in an immutable body. And yet Demerzel is, is apparently you know a, a follower of this religion. And that seems, the question of the robot logic aside, that seems like a huge kind of conflict.
1: Yeah and I, and I think by the way that brother day literally and figuratively walked into that. Oh yeah. He had to know that the the possibility of of Zephyr Halima taking over that ceremony and absolutely embarrassing him. And it was really turned out to be more than embarrassing. I mean it was mm-hmm. like a major blow and the fact that Demerzel, at the end kneels down with all the other luminists. I mean that was like wow. I just I, I was absolutely beside myself when that happened, a a complete, and you see the expression on his face, he sees it, he knows what happened, but I I just wonder, you know, how how did he allow himself to politically to walk into that? Because he
0: is a narcissist. I guess and he does he he has no self-awareness so you recognize this is the first time as Demerzel says and if I recall correctly this does align with how the Cleons and respective emperors were treated in the books they do not leave the imperial grounds so he does not know how to present himself he doesn't know how to handle himself outside of the imperial grounds this isn't something that the emperor does and that's actually aligned with the books and yeah. he's a massive, pompous narcissist.
1: A little bit of Dunning-Kruger there. You know, he, yeah, he believes he's going to be really good at this. But this and that yes. belief is itself his, his downfall. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean,
3: you, you would think the, you know, we're going to make sure everybody has clean drinking water. I mean, that might work in a popular election. But, mm-hmm. you know, we're you know, aiming at something that's like the, Card- the, the College of Cardinals who are going to be dominated by their own self-interest. They may not even care if the people have clean drinking water. You know, it's all going to be about them jockeying for position. You know, the idea that he thought that that was going to be, you know, determinative just speaks to weak political skills. Uh, those can see the other thing is that at the end, when the, um, the other Zephyr, they're basically conducting a funeral and, and it just talking about desalinization plants at the start of a funeral just seems just clumsy and unseemly to start off with. And so that really, it it, it it didn't just, he wasn't just blindsided by that. He actually set the stage for Zephyr Halema.
1: He did. And there's a long tradition in our history of funerals being used for political reasons.
3: Yeah. But usually not that clumsily.
4: Not that. Clumsily. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, not
0: that. I would say at least our political leaders do leave their political grounds and occasionally get out of the house, <laughs> which helps. They're still politicians, but... Uh, the Cleons, and, and, and in turn, any of the emperors and any really of the imperial staff are so incredibly sheltered. And it really does reflect upon some of the mobility or nobility of the past, you know, hearkening back to the ages of feudalism. I mean, it really is just two separate worlds. So yeah, I, I'm not even remotely supply, surprised. And I like seeing that clumsiness, I think, was a great reflection of that. And, and Lee Pace nailed it naturally. Uh,
2: interestingly, Dermozal is, is also more off balance in this episode mm-hmm. than she's ever been. Uh, she's like a little any-
0: positronically distressed.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anytime, you know, from that scene where Brother Day asks her about the faith for the first time, that's like the first time we see her almost at a loss for words.
0: Second time.
2: A second time. When was the first? <laughs> because-
0: So the first I recall was, it was an episode two, it was directly after she'd interrogated the biohacking lab Mm -hmm. and they had asked her, I I talked about this on Twitter a bit, but they had asked her, why have we not taken care of the bodies that are floating in the atmosphere, burning, you know, burning up in the atmosphere. And she stuttered and mentioned, we've prioritized recovery and helping people after the crisis, which struck me as very Asimovian of like, okay, we're going to prioritize saving people's lives. Mm-hmm. But he's like, get, it, get this garbage out of the <laughs> atmosphere. People are watching. It's embarrassing. But she she did seem to stutter there. And I don't think that was an accident. Because those we, are the details I look for.
1: <laughs> do we think that Demerzel is a sincere believer in luminism?
0: No. Or is it well, part of her? Yes. Plan? I, I, I have thoughts, but... Please elaborate, more Oh, please. Since, <laughs> since, <laughs> you, you have, I think, here. what is
2: unquestionably the number one Demersall fan account on Twitter.
0: Of course. <laughs> in, in the world, maybe?
2: <laughs> I think so.
0: Uh, yeah, I cornered the market. You're welcome. You're welcome. But yes, so I, I, I've put a lot of thought into this. The first time around watching the episode, I was similarly taken aback. I, I, I really, and if anybody listening is interested, I will tweet in real time when I'm watching the episodes. And I am absolute chaos energy. I do not hold back. So prepare for that accordingly. But the second time watching it, it started to make sense to me. There is something fundamentally spiritual to me, not religious, but spiritual to Demerzels. I won't use the forbidden word, but Demerzels pursue- Oh, go ahead. We we don't have any- (laughs) Daniil, Daniil, Daniil. Okay, got it out. (laughs) (laughs) But in the prequels, it's mentioned that Deberzell slash Daniel slash Human slash whatever else is bound by minimalism. And there's this like kind of critical lack of intuition with robots. But there the constant question overriding this particular robot's life is the definition of humanity. And so much hinges on getting that definition right. So we have the zeroth law, which in execution is a robot must protect humanity or through inaction, not allow humanity to come through harm. But what is humanity? That's the question that's asked. So I think it is very easy, and this, the show might be taking this direction, or I might be proven wrong next episode, we'll see, of this is just one box that Demerselle is pursuing to define humanity. And I, I theorize as the mother themselves. But the emperors propose this concept of stability of the emperor, of the empire, of humanity in turn, um, through this continuity. And this is obviously proving to unfold. So then hearkening back to what Zephyr Halima said, she mentions the greatest crime of humanity. Let me find the exact quote. She said, the greatest, let me bring up my notes, the greatest failure of humanity, the greatest sin against the mother is stagnation. So that just reminds me why through the Zeroth law, Demerzel was pursuing the expansion of the earth people over the spacers. How long did the spacers live? Just about 400 years in their lifespan, wherein they were allowed to stagnate. So what luminism is presenting is a solution to the direction of humanity to disallow stagnation through the Zeroth Law or through whatever code of very literal code of ethics that Demerzel might be led by in the series. So I don't think that Demerizel worships Luminism for herself. I think she worships Luminism for humanity. She sees a solution for the continuity of humanity. And because of that almost spiritual attachment to the Zeroth Law and this constant quest for determining the best destination for humanity... There is an intensity to that, but I don't think that Demerzel is interested in herself here. I think she's trying, as she said, to find that path because it's not easily put out and put in place. So it's speaking to a certain desperation that you would see at the somewhat end of a 20,000 year old life.
1: It's interesting. (laughs) No, it is because I think that it does kind of, it does make sense. I mean, it, it remains to be seen whether the people making a TV show have thought about it as carefully as you have.
0: Right. And, and I, I have, I've been like thinking about it and then I'm just like, you know what? Next episode it's going to be like, actually, she just really wants to have a soul. <laughs> and she's just really sad. <laughs> so who knows? I mean, I girl. could see that being a TV resolution. <laughs> like, oh, Demersville's just really sad. She's not a human, but I'm here like, yeah. okay, but it, you know, in this grand scheme of Daniil's machinations through the series. This is the perspective that I think he'd hold when they go to the show. We'll see what happens, but there's no reason.
1: There's no reason for them not to do that. They can have a a big complicated story about what Demerzel is doing. In my mind, that's okay. You know, and if it takes the audience a little while to figure it out, that's okay. I I know that, that a lot of the time there's a sort of a desire to make things obvious to the least observant viewer. Um, but I, I think it's not necessary. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I get entitled to my opinion about how TV should work, but I think you could have a, a story where Demerzel is playing a very complicated, very intricate game. And, it's and how the books work on, on multiple <laughs> levels, you know, and she's yeah. got the the foundation is part of her plan. She, she encouraged Harry in the books to develop psychohistory in order to better serve humanity to better mm-hmm. understand how the future is going to operate at the same time she was uh, or he in the in the in the books was they. running the empire they were <laughs> running the empire you know, we, we do have things that have happened in the TV show and presumably in the books as well that are pretty hard to square with the robotic laws. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, if she if she was responsible for the Starbridge falling 150 million people died and then two planets full of humans were devastated, I, I think that would create a bit of a conflict. In I uh, do. <laughs>
0: in and, I, you know, I, I I see, I've seen the Starbridge and I've heard the Starbridge theories that Demersel is responsible. And I don't want to necessarily, necessarily refute it because if you think about the grand scheme the greater good utilitarianism because that's the thing about daniel's characters i've always liked that they are so driven sincerely to guide and protect humanity at any cost, which I think is not a good thing, but that's, that's what gives the character complexity to me is that they, they are desperate. They don't necessarily have it mapped out because they don't have a human brain. They, they don't exactly have humanity's intentions aligned with what they think humanity's intentions and, and good outcomes are. So it's really interesting to see this character graph, grasp you know, grasp that and try to understand it. But If you think about the broad scale of the empire, though, 500 million people or half a population of two planets versus the entire galaxy of tens of thousands of planets and quadrillion humans, you know, it is more or less minuscule. Now, do I want to see Mm. that? be the direction? No, (laughs) i still a genocide. But I could see that working within the framework of the zeroth law for better or for worse. And I think the books were a little bit too loose on how little Daniil could apply that. Because in reality, working as a politician, I think it's inevitable that he would have to make decisions wherein people would die in in a very large capacity.
2: My fear about the the theory of Demerzel bringing down the tower, which I still think is likelier than not. But my fear about that in combination with her our new discovery that she is a robot of faith is that she's somehow, there's, there's a negative one flaw that <laughs> says, you know, thou shalt not arm a god or by inaction allow a god oh to be
0: But what if you're and, the god in question? Well,
2: yeah. <laughs> I, I mean,
0: think Demerzel is... I th- I am convinced that mother is Demerzel. 100
2: so, percent If so, then that's that's maybe a little different. But I I really don't want her to become like a fundamentalist,
4: like a mm. like a
2: Cylon or something.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, <laughs> that's that a would be that,
2: that would be taking the character in too far a different direction. And I mean, I, I'm sure they could do something fun with it, but that would not be the demo we that know. I yeah. yeah. And I,
0: I don't think they're doing that. And it's not, it's not because of anything in series per se. I think it's the marketing of the mm-hmm. character who has been described as a slow burn and has really not been framed as a, an antagonist to me. Um, and I, I think religious fundamentalist terrorist isn't really what they're going for with this particular character. So I don't want to believe the Starbridge, though. I, I, I'm, this might be like a denial thing. This is my, my denial denial, <laughs> but I don't want to believe that. But if that's the case, I feel like there's going to be another reason other than, oh, well, because the three goddesses told me I had to do it. I think there's going to be a good explanation within the framework of somehow this is better for humanity and we need to weaken the planets that were surrounding Terminus or something along those lines. But I could see where that is coming from as far as this religious connection that this robot apparently has. But I really do think that there's something else there. And I could continue on with the the whole mother equals Demerzel thing. But I, I think, to, I, I don't know, to me, it's just like, it's, it's, pointing straight in the face like the mother is Demerzel to me because 15,000 years is the, the age of faith. They wouldn't have left that detail, I think, if we didn't have a millennia old robot in the, in the room. So that, that seemed important that they mentioned 15,000 years pre-imperial faith. And then this Trinity and the way that they're trying, the mother is trying to combat stagnation of humanity. I, I think that right. that's what we're going to see.
1: Well, let me make a couple of points that also harken back, not just to the prequels, but also to the robot series. Mm-hmm. Uh, one being that on the negative side, if you can justify the murder of hundreds of millions of people, even in a galaxy of trillions, because the zeroth law tells you that it's good for humanity, then you can do anything. You're not restricted at all. And so that's a that's a big negative to me. The other thing, the point about stagnation is the original unification of the robot series and Foundation, why there are no robots in Foundation, has to do with the robots deciding that they were causing humanity to stagnate. Mm-hmm. They were too protective of humanity and they had to remove themselves from humanity and all but Daniil did remove themselves.
0: Well... He had agents okay. we don't know the extent yeah. well we know i mean doors Venabili. doors my short, favorite doors
1: and my we know queen. that the solarians and we know that some of the spacers still uh, had their robots but by and large the robots decided that what would be best for humanity under the zero law was to
4: remove
0: right and the that, that is the, of, of the end goal is that you know they would i my understanding was you know you had the base on the moon um wherein I mean, Daniil seemed to isolate himself in a little mansion somewhere, but there was a, a complex ecosystem of other humaniforms is how it was described. And it sounds like they were all coming back and this was getting to a point wherein they were more or less defunct, but there was a pretty tremendous role so much for not interfering, but there was a pretty tremendous role in the deletion of certain historical records. And I wonder if that's going to tie in in any way with this robot wars mythos, or maybe there were actual robot wars. I don't know. But I, I, I do think that there was more humaniform influence than just Danielle. And then here's Doors. She was studying history and Cena, and now she's here. And now she's your wife. Like I, I want, and that that does really, you know, how much integration did we really see with Humaniforms as advanced as Doris Vanibili? I mean, she apparently went to college, <laughs> she got her master's in history. Like, I, at what point is it just okay? Go be a human, and I'll call you when I need you.
1: She she like, was mean with a knife, and it took her about. Two she was to she yeah, my that. favorite
0: line of literature of all time. Like, talk about feminist icon, but is when she was buying a knife from the vendor and doll. And they said, all right, here's a knife. And she's like, okay, I want another one. And she's like, why do you need two knives? And she's like, cause I've got two hands. <laughs> I just like, yes, <laughs> what an icon. I, I love doors. I'm sorry. But the, idea,
1: the idea of Demerzel being an originator or a supporter of luminism in order to fight the stagnation of humanity mm-hmm. does match up with this idea from the books from the robot series of the robots realizing that they were causing humanity to stagnate and had to do mm-hmm. to, something to, to fight against that. So,
0: right. That, that- and I, I do also, you know, we see in the books, this divide into three people. I, there's so many threes in the book. It, it's so repetitive. You know, we've got three laws of robotics and then we've got, and show we've got the triumvirate of emperors. But I wonder though, you know, I mentioned that the, the mother split herself into three, who else in the books was three people? Mm-hmm. We had deversel Daniil, and Hummin, the journalist. I, I don't know how much he actually really went leaned into that persona, but Daniil did that. So maybe that's some sort of illusion throwing us a bone there. So I don't know. I, I read a theory, though, the other day that there's some way that... Daniel actually divided himself into multiple bodies and is commanding different posts throughout the galaxy. But my understanding of a positronic brain is that they are, you know, form is equal to function in those regards. So I don't, I don't know really how you could do that with a positronic brain or else the question, the fundamental question at the end of foundation and earth and the uncertainty principle and the miniaturization question kind of goes out the window then you wouldn't have to steal the solarian's brain at the point
1: <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> yeah that takes us a lot further than that we're going to get in this season of the tv oh, show yeah. that's for sure uh, we, we've gone all over the place dan um <laughs> lord dorwin's miraculous escape from the from the explosion You know, that's funny. They did that and they said, we needed you. And I can't figure out why they need him because he doesn't seem to be doing
0: anything. He's
1: a hostage, but so what? I mean. He
0: has has good um, vibes. (laughs)
3: There there must be some function on the Invictus. And actually that, that, that line about um, him allowing him to live, I took as, as, as an explanation for why they, not for why he survived the the fall of the ship, but why they didn't they hadn't just shot him in the head. Now that he was on the
1: ground. I was would
0: have surprised been just as... by
1: the way. Go ahead, go ahead, Morgan.
0: Oh, I was just gonna it would be just as easy to just let him explode with the rest of the ship. <laughs> like I, was surprised.
1: <laughs> I was gonna say I was surprised though that last in the last episode we kind of noted how the Anacreon soldiers had stormtrooper aim and didn't hurt anybody. Um, mm-hmm. in this episode, there's a lot of dead bodies lying around. Ooh, yeah. And it's, and it's brutal. I mean and there's a lot of carnage people. on
0: the part of Salvor. He's so left so much for the. Salvor you know, kills a will, lot of anode.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, her she and brother brother Don had something in common this episode. They were in for the hunt.
3: <laughs> Although that being said, that being said, I think one of the things that we what we did start seeing in uh, in this episode is the evolution of Salvor from the that that line being an old man's philosophy to someone who is actually at some point going to believe that violence is the the last refuge of the incompetent.
0: Right. And I think, you know, even in the books, there is a direction of Salvor as mayor wanting the encyclopedist, encyclopedist, anyway, um, wanting them to better protect themselves and to build up arms. It wasn't all, you know, let's shoot a bunch of people and like have a ton of guns, but that, that was an emphasis from Hardin's character. So I think they're playing a little bit loose with it, but, you know, this arc is sensible I just think a little bit more exaggerated on the part for the sake of character development for her. But I, I do like her role, <laughs> Leah Harvey's role. So
1: I, I think it's fantastic. And I, I think it is an episode that uh, it's great that it's streaming because you need to watch it more than once to see everything that's going on in there. There's just a lot going on. We're switching scenes very, very quickly. Just a, just a lot to. I, I, I was dizzy from the scene that.
0: switching. <laughs> I had to pause. I'm like, wait, now now we're in the Imperial grounds. Oh, now we're back. We're back to Surah. Oh, now we're back to Terminus. I was waiting to be like, and that, well, I was gonna say back to Gale, but then we kind of got that. But then from the perspective of Salvor, so I'm just, I was dizzy. It was 2 a.m. I I was tired.
2: <laughs> Actually, let me ask you on that point. In Salvor's vision. She's she's kind of in the perspective of Gail. Like absolutely. she sort of bursts in to the room as Gail was bursting in. But uh, the conversation happening in the room seems to be something that Gail didn't see or hear. Yeah. So That's is she true. psychically linked to Gail?
1: Or else or Harry. Where is, Harry? Where is this coming from? So, so I think in the first vision, she was put in the position of Harry discovering Rach in the library, mm-hmm. stealing the books. And in this one, she was put into the persona of Gail, but I, I, I got the impression that the, the vault, which we all believe is behind these visions, is trying to communicate certain messages to her. And that the message that it was important to communicate that scene between Harry and Rach. And so even though she's in the persona of Gail, she's still seeing things that Gail didn't see because the message is what's important. That she yes. needs to receive, and we, as the audience, need to receive that message. Well, that tells we me have-
0: there's an intent to her receiving these transmissions. Ab-
1: absolutely, there. This they're, is a, well because
0: there's this question of a genetic linkage. So that kind of ancestral memory could be spontaneous, you know, like oh, I'm getting memories from my my mother. But this is this is these thoughts are being put in your head mentally, as we might say, from a foundation perspective. So I think there is something genetically, I agree with that much, but something from the vault that is transmitting these messages. And maybe that's linked to Harry's consciousness.
1: Right. I think the genetic component is that she is receptive to the, to the messages coming from the vault. Not that she has an ancestral memory necessarily from Gail, that, that she's just able to receive those messages. Right. And God
0: willing, she's not a chosen one. I, well, I think, <laughs> I think this is totally an orchestrated affair. <laughs> God willing. Yeah. You know, it, it oh, is wow. funny, though, because I, I am so, like, gutturally against the idea of a chosen one in the series, and it's so funny as a a Demerzel stan that you know, Demerzel really kind of Plays that role, but I specifically rem- uh, remember a conversation between Harry and and Daniel where he's like, "But you're so important, you can't, you know, you couldn't die or you couldn't leave." Is like, you'll find that. D- Daniel replied, "You'll find that nobody's important, not myself and not you." So even Daniil said that much. Is that true? I don't know. We've got the mule. We've got Golan Trevez. Hopefully, I pronounce that the way everyone does. But. We do have chosen ones in the series, for better or for worse. It's a little early,
1: but <laughs> we do know though from what Goyer has said that he's aware of these topics. Right. And he is yes. he is yes. he is dealing with them, whether he deals with them to our satisfaction or not. He's not just blindly blundering along. He, he's aware that we're watching it and we are, we are asking these questions and he is asking the questions
4: as well.
0: Of course. And I like to think that maybe he's like reading some of the critique and like putting that into the next script. Like, ah, oh, you know, I was playing a little bit too loose with this plot. Let's fix that up. But I don't know what happens on the end of Hollywood producers. I'm a scientist, but he does seem to be very receptive and, obviously a fan of the books. I think people were skeptical about that much, but after reading his AMA, I don't think I've read an AMA that was more engaged with the questions. I mean, he answered quite a few of mine and I don't get noticed in those kinds of things. So <laughs> I, I was pretty impressed by that. I'm not familiar with his past work. I've heard mixed reviews, but you know, I, th- I think he, he might know what he's doing. We'll see, but
2: yeah, I I'm think an what, whatever one thinks about the changes, they are not made from ignorance, yes. no. um, yeah and not gratuitous,
0: yeah, exactly. And I'm having yeah, fun. I'm, That's my main takeaway.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: I'm absolutely. I'm having I'm a absolutely. great
0: time. Like Look, my I friends watched... know what psychohistory is. That's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I watched Dune yesterday, mm-hmm. and uh, it was okay. But yeah. I would have traded that movie for another Foundation episode like in a second, you know.
0: Yeah, dude, I, I see I never got into the books. I'm a heretic. I know I've read I I'm a big fan of Clark, Heinlein, Esimov never gotten to dune sorry it's a little so- bit too flowery high fantasy slash sci-fi for me i'm more of a high a hard sci-fi person like greg egan type stuff i it looks good i'm gonna see it timothy chalamet is in everything now i'm just coming to terms with that i'm glad they didn't cast timothy chalamet as daniel <laughs> oh here's a here's a pretty boy <laughs> I, I thought he did a good job. We're not, here to, we're not here to
1: talk about Dune, but I thought he did a pretty good job. I thought it was, it was acceptable. He's a fantastic my, actor. It's my...
0: funny. He's just suddenly everywhere.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: he is. He's Wonka, apparently.
1: <laughs> well, I would love to talk about this just ongoing infinitely, but I think we, we have a limit to how far we can go. Um, True. I think we've, and unless there is, if there's anything, anybody, you know, feels we haven't got to, Please, please bring it up now and we'll we'll get on to our moment of levity and, and I think we're going to have to wrap it up.
0: Yeah, I think we're good. I will put a bit of, you know, inside information. I have no idea how podcasts work.
1: So. Neither do we. We have please absolutely just... no
4: idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Here's what happens.
1: Touché. We record this, we edit it and all we really edit out are the parts where we say, oh, we need to edit this out. We edit out ums and ahs and breathing noises if we can. For the most part, the conversation that we've just had is going to be uploaded to the internet intact. Wonderful. I I don't see any part of the conversation. I'm not going to edit this thing for time. If you don't like the podcast, stop listening. Yeah,
0: right. We consider our
1: listeners to be a wonderful group of practically non-existent people.
0: Right. Well, I I think, you know, the demographic here is used to like long, heady dialogue, intensive things, or they wouldn't be listening to a foundation podcast. So- Well, I, I think, I think our listeners are here for it. You you accept, you find your niche in life and you just go with it. And this is our niche. So
1: I mean, the feedback I got from our last guest was that the person I, one person that I talked to said, I wish it was longer. I wish that you'd talk to him for, for more time. So listen, I, mean, I, I
0: listen to you guys at work. So I, I've been writing up Dozens of technical protocols and suffering through every part of it. So I've been like, you know what, Star's End, Cracking Foundation, Selden Crisis. We're just putting them all on in queue. So I, I'm having a great time. Foundation's getting me through my, you know, interregnum. Oh, of life. I'm,
1: I'm so. very gratified to hear that. So Dan, yeah, do you too. have a, do you have a moment, a moment of levity for us? Yeah, you know, actually, I have two moments of levity. I have one as um, well. Let's we'll see if your fantastic. moment of levity. Well, so the, the first planet.
2: one is what we already mentioned, which is this amazing miraculous survival of Lord <laughs> Jorwin. Yes. And it would be one thing if he just survived a crashed spaceship impacting the planet, but they went out of their way to make that the most explodey explosion <laughs> I have seen on television in 2021. And I thought this was just like if at the end of Star Wars and the Death Star explodes, and then the next scene, you see the the commander Grand Moff Tarkin just sort of floating in space unharmed. <laughs> like that's exactly what I felt about seeing Lord Dorwin just sort of Who scrawl, we
4: meant for
0: you to live,
2: sprawled scrawl, on the ground with a couple of scratches and a little bit
1: dirty, but otherwise
2: he didn't even
0: develop the speech impediment.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> and I can
0: say that because I have a speech impediment. So
1: that well, that would just... have been the time for him to develop. Yeah. It
0: right uh, hello. <laughs>
1: That was just stunning. Oh,
0: and my God.
1: I, you know,
2: I, I chuckled. <laughs> I was aghast and in awe of this man's uh, survival ability. So, you know, props to Lord Dorwin.
0: It was um, all Demerzel. She made sure of it.
1: Yeah, she, she planned for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Trust and, that Demerzel knew exactly what was going to happen. She had to preserve our king. <laughs>
2: And then the other moment of levity, Morgan, you'll like this, comes from Demoiselle herself. Last time we saw her at, seated at her little table, she was actually fixing a bullet wound the, several episodes ago. But now, and we see her from behind, it's clearly a makeup table that she's sitting at, and she is literally putting on her face.
0: okay yeah what was that like guys i gotta i gotta fix this square in my face real quick
1: so i guess that injury she had back in episode two never healed or whatever because
0: well it didn't hit her face
2: i see i thought given how much it was like just doing her makeup i assumed that she you know goes to bed every night without her face and that she's just sort of robotic lying in bed
4: no,
0: just she the swear, at all. Just that square out that of her swear. face. Well, yeah, it's like You got to keep it open. That's how she charges.
2: Maybe that's the USB
1: port is in there. <laughs> She's
2: got but a lightning charger. It's, serious.
0: Apple. it's Apple. It's a lightning charger. <laughs>
1: I'll give you a serious sort of film school reason for it, which was that they wanted to mirror the scene when Brother Day was a child. Of course. Watching her prepare so her face. They want to refer back to the influence that Demerzel has over... Over Brother Day. Which she uh, should my have moment worked worked of way harder on.
0: You know, I was hoping so much that oh this oh this brother Don is going to evolve in a much more altruistic kind understand. nope. I mean no. he's more of a frat boy versus a genocidal maniac, but well,
3: you we'll know, get, not being a genocidal maniac is something. That's progress. I mean it
0: makes sure. for great character art. <laughs> Terence Mann is blowing it out of the water. He is great. I mean the Broadway. <laughs> type theatrics. uh, We have such a fantastic cast on the Empire end of the series. And I I don't want to discredit some of the newer actors and actresses who are playing parts in other areas because it's such a tremendous opportunity. But we have such star power there. I mean, I don't have a lot of understanding of Laura Burns' role because she's a Finnish actress. She's done a lot a lot of work that is not in English. I haven't really been exposed to it. Now I'm convinced, but I, she's definitely got a catalog. And then obviously Lee Pace, Terrence Mann. I mean, we're we're working with a fantastic set of people. So that's why that I think that arc is shining so brilliantly.
1: I mean, I, I mean we all think Cooper Sate has done a fantastic job as Farrah. Oh
4: yeah.
0: Um, she's very and she's well engaging known with, and, and with and the, the fandom. The, uh... Yes, yes,
1: she's engaging <laughs> Her, with
0: the fandom. Leah Harvey, I have I've had quite a few exchanges with, I feel infinitely blessed by their presence. <laughs> I love it.
1: I think they're, they're doing a fantastic job. Yeah. It's, the whole thing is is very, uh, is, is very entertaining. So my, my <laughs> moment of levity is yet another dinner table scene where uh, on the ship, as they approach the maiden and uh, Demerzel and, uh, and Brother Day are kind of doing the, the quiz about the religion, there's this table absolutely groaning with food on it. And he is apparently eating a bowl of invisible soup or water or something he's like spooning water into his mouth it was just like, why is there again why is there all that food on the table, if he's just eating like nothing,
0: it reminds me and maybe maybe this is a generational thing but on like in Disney movies, there's always this like massive table, like, you know, late 1990s movies, massive table of breakfast. And the kid always comes downstairs and grabs one piece of toast and goes, all right, bye. It's like (laughs) your mother made you all this food (laughs) and you grab one piece of bread, run out the door. And it's like, I would have been engorged, man. Like I growing up, I had like buttered toast with cinnamon. Be grateful. But I do like, I actually, I follow on Twitter, one of the designers of just the food in the series. So it's really fascinating how intricate some of the details are in the series. And one of the things in question is the, just presenting the food of, you know, 25,000 years, presumably in the future. Um, So there's a lot of thought that went into that, despite him completely ignoring it for his water soup. Well,
1: listen. Thank you so much for bringing your insight onto our podcast. I think that the, <laughs> the guest, the guest format, it really is working out. Oh, I love
0: well. it. Keep doing it.
1: And we, well, we are going to keep doing it because <laughs> we have two more guests lined up. One, one uh, who I will admit, and as I mentioned last time, is is, is my wife. But she, <laughs> we're bringing her on because she is a fan of the show who has not read the books. Yeah, that's really my boyfriend. The same. In seeing that point of view and perspective and then uh, on November 6th as a recording date we have a, a screenwriter named uh, Richard Greenberg who uh, you can look him up on IMDB he wrote a movie called Zoe, which was a science fiction movie who I hope is going to bring some insight into some of the decisions that you make uh, in in producing a science fiction movie and in adapting a, a, a book like Foundation to uh, to the screen um, he's also a really nice guy who I've known for a really long time, so it should be it should be a good episode. So we're going to continue the guest format. Mm-hmm. I think there are going to be other guests as well in the future.
0: We got to get Goyer. We, oh, we
1: got to get Goyer. We got want... to get Goyer.
0: Listen, Marina Goyer follows me on Twitter. I I have machinations beyond your un- understanding.
1: We'll take someone who like rode on an elevator with Goyer yeah. once. You know, we're, I feel, we're I feel like proud. we
0: could get a cast member. I, I have enough pull. Just like. DM Leia Harvey and be like, listen.
1: <laughs> if you can do that for us, you will be in the Star's End Podcast Hall of Fame forever. <laughs> 100%. We'll rename the podcast Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. The
0: Trash Memes Podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, but well, this has been brilliant. We can,
1: well, thank you very much. Again. Yeah, thank you yeah, thank so you. much.
0: This has been exciting and I've enjoyed it capturing some of the behind the scenes of everything.
2: Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast,
1: subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason.
3: Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars
4: end.